renewable energy, if it's done right, is regional development and the opportunity for regional communities where, let's face it, pretty much every wind, solar or hydrogen plant is going to be in regional Australia. Money needs to flow back into regional Australia. It, it could be the greatest boom we've seen since the gold rush, really. We respectfully acknowledge that Hypecast is recorded on traditional Aboriginal lands, which have been sustained for thousands of years. We honour their ongoing connection to these lands and seek to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians. How can local communities best share in the vast opportunities of our national transition to a net zero carbon economy and work together to become climate resilient? Throughout her successful campaign for election as an independent in the northern Victorian federal seat of Indi in 2019, Dr Helen Haynes has championed an approach to community-led representation. Since her election, Dr Haynes has applied the same approach to undertake an extensive community policy co-design process to develop the local power plan for community-owned renewable energy and to develop a framework for an Australian Federal Integrity Commission. Today I sit down with Dr Helen Haynes, the Independent Member for Federal Parliament for Indi, and Kate Nicolasso, General Manager of Sustainability at HIPV Hype, to discuss how regional communities are at the forefront of Australia's renewable energy transformation. Helen, the communities in your electorate, such as Yakindanda and Yaroa, have um, long been leading the way in terms of community energy and been the envy, I'd say, of many regional communities uh, across Australia. What do you see as the opportunities and benefits of kind of community pushing um, for ownership around renewable energy projects? Oh, Kate, there's, there's just so many benefits. And I mean, firstly, let's even think about what, what are we even talking about when we talk about community energy? Um, it's not a universal definition, but essentially it means that uh, it's energy that everyday people develop, own or benefit from in the renewable energy space. And sometimes we see communities such as such as Euroa, for example, which is down the southern end in my, of my electorate of Indi, is a community that's right on the edge of the grid and suffers from really frequent blackouts and brownouts, which has meant that they were seeking a solution to a very real problem, which is, is an insecure energy supply. So, you know, they've set about working as, as a whole of community approach, looking to, to establish a microgrid energy sharing and a community battery to solve a problem for them. And of course, in solving that problem, it also means that uh, they can enjoy cheaper energy and uh, that they can share the benefits of cheaper energy with community groups, kindergartens, schools, local hospitals, places like that that otherwise may not be able to afford putting in full-scale solar on their roof. If you were to look at Yagadanda up the northern end of my electorate, their goals were really aspirational around uh, climate change and emissions reduction, and they really wanted to go totally renewable by 2022, and they're well on the way um, of doing that. And they've, they've taken the, the whole community energy ideas to another place too by, by developing an energy retailer so that uh, they can not only set up energy sharing in their own community, but that people outside of Yakandanda could purchase energy from uh, a social enterprise. And uh, that, that social enterprise is called Indigo Power. 
It's really exciting. We're seeing a lot of conversations around building community resilience in response to, to climate change and the growing impacts. But that also includes that idea around local economic resilience. So I guess maybe just drawing yep. that out a little bit more about the experience that your communities are having around the importance of that, that economic resilience. Yeah, well, I, I think when you look at local business or particularly if you're looking at manufacturing, for example, one of the biggest cost inputs is power. So to find a source of power that is really significantly cheaper is, is really important. So, you know, when I hear about governments talking about gas-led recoveries, I, I never hear about that in rural communities. Something like gas is not even on the radar of people in rural Australia. They're, they're thinking about what's our greatest and cheapest resource. Well, it's the sun above our heads or the wind wind um, rushing through our, our hair. And that's what they're thinking about. And I, and I look at, um, well, if we go to Yakindandra again, the local hospital, the local health service has got a full full solar system and you know they'll be saving close to a million dollars over 10 years which is pretty extraordinary so it really makes sense and, and again when we're thinking about economics and resilience more broadly i can give you another example of Coriong, which is a beautiful little village uh, right up in the upper murray and it was really desperately impacted by the bushfires of 2019 2020 that town was cut off from power for several days and uh, that meant they had to evacuate the hospital. It meant no businesses could run. It, it meant that people were really unsafe. They couldn't operate their phones. And I mean, again, you think of everything that you need power for. So we've been successful up there. We're, I've been successful working with them around obtaining some grants to make them islandable in a bushfire so that they will have their own internal microgrid and community batteries. So should that power ever get cut again from a natural um, catastrophe event such as bushfire, then they can switch the power back on and be independent. Now, that's a really incredible outcome. So that sort of talks to really practical, pragmatic things that the community is getting on, getting on and doing in response to, to climate change. I guess just expanding that out, did you, are you seeing that there's evidence that this sort of community ownership model is having really benefits in terms of the social connection and cohesion within the community? Oh, look, absolutely. And again, you know, I represent regional communities and regional people, I think like, like everyday people, probably everywhere, are pretty tired of, of climate wars. They're pretty tired of people holding fast to their corner. And, and, and the people I represent are really keen on, on rolling up their sleeves and doing something practical. And it's something that actually is very meaningful. So things like I've just described are those communities that are responding to, to their own energy instability and uh, the very real impacts of climate change in, in the shape of more frequent bushfires see community energy as a really tangible thing they can do. And, and you know, an example, uh, just last week, I was down in the town of Benalla and I was there to open, open a community energy project uh, that was a partnership with a newly established solar farm with the community energy group in town, with a solar uh, panel provider, with some local benefactors and the kindergarten themselves. They all came together and said, gosh, we've got really expensive energy prices at this kindergarten. It's one of our most expensive, biggest expenses. We want, we want to be doing something good for the environment and teaching our kids about that. How can we do this? And uh, by coming together, the solar farm has a community fund, the community energy group, went to that went to that fund some local local benefactors matched up some dollars as well 
And they've established this perpetual fund now so that the local kinder was fully fully um, supported to purchase these solar panels and uh, switch it on. And again, immediate saving and a, a really good sense of community in working together to achieve that. There's lots of other examples too of, of social housing, for example, and, and we know that people who rent often have uh, no opportunity to lower their power bills by putting on solar because the you know the landlord may not wish to do that. And certainly in social housing, you know, no control over that either. So community groups coming together and saying, let's get solar panels on our, on our public housing areas and um, lower the power bills for the people living there. Maisie, you've given some really incredible examples of, as you sort of say, community energy is so broad. So there's the idea of having local ownership of a community community energy retailer. There's sort of these really incredible microgrid projects, these islanding, you know, for, for... regional communities that are at the edge of the grid there's there's sort of solar gardens as you talked about for people who can't necessarily access or put solar on their rooftops and and then that model of community funds that sort of exists alongside those really large-scale solar developments are there any other examples that we haven't sort of touched on so far in the conversation (laughs) haven't touched on is i mean they're they're all small scale essentially but if we were to look at what's missing in the renewable energy market in australia i'd have to say it's it's probably mid-scale, so that one to 10 megawatts. And there's an example of which is probably well known to your listeners of the Hepburn Wind Project, whereby a whole of community approach to purchase wind turbines and uh, provide energy to the town. There's also examples, Golden Valley, the Shepparton, Greater City of Shepparton Council are partnering with the community energy group and private business to establish a mid-scale renewable energy project. And, you know, the direct profits from that project will be coming back into council, lowering rates for people in Shepparton, providing direct benefit into that broader community, which is really great. And we, we kind of miss that a lot in Australia. And, and one of the things I've done as, a, as the federal member for India is put forward legislation around community energy based on some policy work I did last year, co-designed with communities not only in India, but right around regional Australia. And that's looking at government, federal government, underwriting community groups, local councils for mid-scale investment. So if they can demonstrate they could put up 51% of investment in a mid-scale project, like a a reasonable-sized solar farm, for example, partner with the private enterprise, the government would underwrite the community side of it. And, and we, know from, we know from similar examples around the world that the return on investment for that's really safe and really good. And, and in fact, Victorian state government have, have provided underwriting and support for things like community energy hubs. And we know that the return on investment is, is around 13 times. Yeah, that's incredible. It'd be good to sort of dive a little bit more into that co-design process that you went through developing that policy. What did you learn about participatory policy design in that process? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is I'm, I'm a community independent. So I was elected two years ago to INDI, the second independent member here, following on from, from Cathy McGowan. We made history in INDI by doing that. Never before has an independent followed an independent in federal parliament. We've achieved that by working together right across right across the electorate. Again, not kind of following the, the pathway of, of, of major parties. So taking a really grassroots approach and, and having lots and lots of community conversations and really respectful ones where people's ideas are actually listened to and valued. And so I took that same approach once I was elected to say to the people of Indi, you've, you know, many of you have said to me during the election campaign that 
we really want to scale up the opportunities for community energy. So in the uh, depths of the, of the dark, dark lockdown of winter last year, I put out a discussion paper right across the nation. I established a 15-member expert panel, largely with people from Indi, but also some other community energy experts, put out that discussion paper and called for submissions. We got 100 submissions back on that paper, which was fantastic. Then set about uh, writing a policy document called the Local Power Plan, which set out really three platforms by which we could really scale up community energy. And uh, the first one was to establish uh, community energy hubs, like I, I just spoke of before. So we, we suggested there should be 50 of those around Australia. They would be grant holders. They would provide technical expertise and, and social licence within communities to establish things like microgrids and community batteries so that community groups don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they want to establish some kind of community energy project. That expertise would be there for them. The mid-scale projects that I just spoke of, so they underwriting mid-scale projects by government. It's something I've called the UNKI scheme, underwriting community energy. And the third platform is to say when there are large corporate uh, renewable energy projects such as really large-scale wind or solar, that those companies must make an offer, a share a share offer to the community where they're wanting to set up of up to 20% buy-in. If the community doesn't want to do that, all well and good, but they need to make the offer. So three platforms there, and I've put that into legislation now and introduced that to, uh, to the House of Representatives. It's going to a parliamentary inquiry in the middle of the year, and I'm really hopeful um, and optimistic that uh, government will look really seriously at this. Just recently, the National Farmers Federation came out very strongly supporting this uh, local power plan and the Australian Local Power Agency, which is the legislation that would make it happen. That's really important. I think that what the National Farmers Federation have recognised, as have the 100 people submitting to this process, is that renewable energy if it's done right, is regional development and the opportunity for regional communities where, let's face it, pretty much every wind, solar or hydrogen plant is going to be in regional Australia, money needs to flow back into regional Australia. It, it could be the greatest boom we've seen since the gold rush, really. Do you see that grassroots process and that idea around this being such a critical part of regional development, sort of taking the lens of, or the, I guess the framework that you've used for developing that in the context of community energy, can that be applied in, in other areas like transport or we talk about a lot about greening and biodiversity? Do you see some opportunity there to actually take that model that you've built? I, I, I actually really do. And I, I guess I'm super committed to, to ground up policy making really committed to people participating um, in their democracy this way. So for me, it's it's just a natural way of working that I, I come in as a member of parliament representing my electorate and, in, and want to impose my idea. I would really want to advocate for the community ideas. So, you know, I think that could be applied to, to any policy area. And uh, look, the, the amount of buy-in and enthusiasm I've had by inviting the community to the policy table and saying, how do we do this together? And then using all the resources of my office then to write the legislation that would, would enable that has been a really, really great process. And I think one of the most exciting features actually of being a member of parliament, and it was really wonderful the day that I read that, that um, legislation into the house, there were people in the gallery who were part of that expert panel and they joined me in a press conference later and they were 
you know, really involved in designing policy and legislation. And, you know, I, I, I really do invite the government to the table to look at this very seriously. We see that even on a really um, micro scale in the work that we do on community-led climate action responses at a municipal level. So I I can completely understand how that must feel when you sort of take that model out to a federal context. It's um, potentially really exciting to see for our democratic processes. So I guess, you know, thank you on behalf of uh, lots of Australians on on sort of taking that approach to working with the community. Oh, you know, I I think it's such a shame we, it's such a shame that that, you know, that it's a bit of a standout me doing that. I, I think you know, imagine how we could respond to very context-specific issues around health, for example, if we took seriously community buy-in into the policy and, and the legislation. I think you'd find, I really think you'd find um, much better solutions and ones that had much better return on, on taxpayer investment, actually. That was actually one of the other areas we're keen to explore with your background, obviously, as a nurse and midwife and medical research. That nexus between climate change impacts and, and public health are obviously, it's increasingly being recognised as a, as a really critical link. Have you got any reflections on how the health sector and the community sector could better integrate climate action? Yeah, look, I mean, straight up, we know the, the evidence is in. We know that uh, a warming climate is negatively impacting our health. And we've only got to look at the emergency department data from around the nation of people presenting with heat stress. We know the impact it's having on cardiovascular disease, stroke, etc. We know that the impact of smoke from you know, prolonged bushfire seasons is negatively impacting people's respiratory system. There's emerging evidence about how it's impacting developing fetuses from data from pregnant women. There's no question that the the health community knows that climate change is having a very negative impact on our health. So how do we how do we broker that knowledge with changing policy? I, I think that we again need to look to the community for getting involved with this and pushing their individual members of parliament to respond. I think that one of the things that we've all heard heard non-stop really since the pandemic is the government saying we're listening to the advice of our medical experts and our medical experts in the field of climate and health have been quite loud too about about pushing government to to lower emissions and address climate change because of the impact on our health so there's a real disconnect there at the moment with well with our our federal policy and some selective bias around when they might listen to health experts and when they may not i think that's really unfortunate i think it's really inconsistent and frankly it's actually dangerous and, uh, and economically crazy because, our, you know, one of our biggest expenses is, is the health budget. And uh, if we're not working in that preventative space and trying to make sure that people are not exposed to dangerous changes in climate, then at the end of the day, we are going to pay the price both literally and uh, in terms of dollars and, and human costs. I mean, the, the whole debate about federal policy and climate is a, a long and fraught one. But I think when everyday people see direct impact on themselves or their neighbours or their loved ones in terms of their health, that's a pretty tragic but powerful message. Just as we wrap up, Helen, it's been really wonderful to speak to you, but just a little bit more about how listeners might be able to support the local power plan getting through the parliamentary inquiry and the next sort of stages heading into legislation, how they can support it within their own electorates. Thanks, Kate. Always needs a good call to action. 
So I would really invite people to maybe firstly go to my website and have a look at the local power plan, or you can just Google local power plan and, and there's a standalone website there as well. So they can have a look at that and, and get a you know more detailed explanation of what I'm trying to do. Then I would suggest that they write a member of parliament and, and highlight to them why this is a really good idea. And, and I, I guess they often say to people, you know, this isn't even this particular bill that I've put forward. It's, it's not political, really. It's, it's straight up regional development. So that's a you know, really good way to look at it. And then I would ask them if, if they've got some energy and it doesn't have to be elaborate, but to participate by putting in a submission to the parliamentary inquiry. And uh, that'll be coming up mid-year without knowing who all your listeners are. Maybe if they'd like to, they could sign up to my website and then they'll get an email to say when the submissions are open. But I'd love them just, even if they can write a paragraph or write something into that parliamentary inquiry talking about why they would support such legislation. I think what I've learned, and I haven't been an MP for very long, well, actually two years, a couple of days ago. And as you said, Kate, I, I don't come from a political background, although I must say, in no matter what we do, we have to engage in politics somehow. But what I've really learned is that the, the power of the pen, actually, if you do participate in something like a, a parliamentary inquiry by putting in a submission, a one-pager or a one-paragraph, it, it all gets noted. It's all there. Uh, if you write to your MP, if they're any good, um, they'll write back to you. And, uh, you know, you you have more influence than you think you do. So jump in, get involved. I'd love you to. I think that's a really important message to, to end on. I think often we feel very disempowered or very far away from those halls of power in Canberra. But the reality is that we're much closer than, than we realise. So we really uh, appreciate yeah. your time, Helen. And it's really wonderful to see independent MPs like you taking up the, the leadership to do, to do more of this work at a grassroots level. My last final question is really, there's, there's quite, obviously still quite a bit of work ahead of you to get the local power plan uh, yeah. across the line. But once that's sort of done and dusted what would be next on your agenda as the next big ticket item ah, okay well there, there is quite a bit to go on the local power plan although you know i keep saying to the prime minister i, I don't care if it, it has my logo on it or yours you should just fund this because it's you know it's a cracking good idea but you know from a national level the the other major policy area that i've been prosecuting really um really robustly is a federal integrity commission and uh, the reason I'm so passionate about that is that it's it's core to our democracy that we trust government. And we know that federal government, particularly and state governments too, of course, um, have called on our citizens to trust them throughout the pandemic. Right now, you know, eye-watering amounts of debt have been clocked up on the, into the national purse. You know, we're about a trillion dollars worth of debt now and terrific if that's well spent. Great if it sets up our young people for a, a really bright future. But of real concern to me is there's no cop on the beat to to look into any discrepancies around this or indeed any any rorts. And we know there's been rorts with public funds and, and every state and territory has an integrity commission to keep keep governments honest, but the federal federal parliament does not. And um, again, if we want to have real action on climate, if we want to have great sensible spending on health or transport uh, or any area of public policy, then we need to make sure that, that politicians are held to account. So uh, that includes me, that includes anyone who's elected to public office. So we need that integrity commission and I'll continue to work really hard to get one. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time, Helen.
Great, great to talk to you. And, and uh, thank you to anyone who happens to listen to this. And if you could do your bit by uh, pushing along this Australian Local Power Agency, I'd be really grateful. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hypecast. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review.